Man, so what have you been up to since I last saw you? Like, oh, I don't know. Let's see. I mean, in terms of uh, fighting or in terms well, let, let, well, let's, uh, uh, let's say, uh, let's just, let's start where you are now. So you, uh, you said you're just back in, uh, in Finland, right? In Turku. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm actually still uh, quarantined for a couple of weeks here, just sort of self-isolation type stuff. Um, but, uh, but yeah, everything's cool here, you know, I mean, it's like uh, everything's uh, fairly free and easy here, which is nice, you know, so Finland had very low case of, uh, low number of cases of uh, corona patients, uh, very low number of deaths, whereas the UK, as you probably already know, had huge number of uh, cases and, and mm -hmm. a lot of people dying and stuff, so uh, yeah, things are quite chill here in comparison to in the UK, actually. Have quite a few of my uh, trips um, blocked off, obviously, between right. uh, between the you know, well, when it started and now. I did manage to fit in a trip to Indonesia just before the outbreak, which is cool. <laughs> <laughs> that was not, that was awesome actually, just because you know I got to train a lot as well as uh, everything else. You know. so, yeah. Uh, so what, well, let's 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 uh, tell everybody what it is that that you do, anyways. Um, you said that brought you over to Indonesia, and I'm assuming that has to do with one of the uh, projects you have for fighting for lives. Actually, it's. Uh, I mean, there's a few reasons I'm usually going over there. One is obviously the fighting for. You know, I originally was there for learning silat and also okay. uh, to establish fighting for lives projects through my silat teacher originally and also through a friend of mine called Chico, who you probably already know as well. Okay. Uh, so Chico is actually heading Fighting for Lives over there at the moment. When, when I started, I went over to Sumatra. So the very first projects were actually in Sumatra. And we were just sort of uh, mainly helping uh, kids in orphanages and stuff with, uh, you know, getting like education, food and so forth. And in Sumatra at some point also, we were having big mudslides that were completely wrecking their, uh, you know, their, like the orphanage schools and that kind of stuff. So we sort of rebuilt uh, new schools and stuff over there as well. But uh, most of the stuff we do now is uh, in Jakarta uh, through Chico, and Chico is basically heading Fighting for Lives in Indonesia at the moment. So what we have there is really cool because we have a medical clinic, okay. uh, yeah. which, you know, helps around four between four and six hundred children each year um, and provides free medical aid to kids who are living on the streets and stuff um, uh, so that's been going for quite a few years we've relocated relocated recently so that we're closer to the house of wolves which is where chico sort of uh, runs his uh, runs his uh, martial arts teaching and training and stuff uh, but we also have a scholarship program for street kids so Basically, you know, take uh, kids from the streets and put them through a martial arts training program so that they can, you know, after, say, 10 years, 12 years or whatever, teach themselves and, and earn a living through martial arts uh, and through teaching martial arts. You know? So that's most of what we do uh, these days in, uh, in Jakarta. Yeah. You have... Um and you do, and you're not just kind of isolated to Indonesia as well. You have projects, uh, you know, kind of scattered yeah, abroad. Yeah, that's now. right. We actually had we had projects all over the world. Actually, you know, we we have another project in Nepal as well at the moment, uh, and that's also a medical clinic. Uh, so that's going pretty well. And we have, uh, you know, 
the the project that we're pumping most of our money into at the moment, I would say, is the project in Kenya, uh, where we're rehabilitating teachers. So we used to, in Kenya, we used to have a school there, and we were running the school for about 30 kids, but it just became so unbelievably expensive because the government put down all these different sort of restrictions for anybody who's running a school and, you know, yeah. And obviously the cost started piling up and piling up and started becoming like, you know, seven, eight thousand euros per year. It was just impossible for us to sustain because at the end of the day, you know, we're a martial arts organization. As you well know, martial artists <laughs> earn much money, you know. So, it's uh, uh, it'd be a challenge for sure. From people all around the world like yourself and, uh, you know, other people around the world, you know, all over actually. Even though we were getting all of that help, you know, you know there was no way we could sustain that. So what we did instead is we, you know, we have the land, we have the buildings for the school still, uh, and we use those now to rehabilitate street kids. So we got uh, six of the kids off the street, and uh, you know these are kids who, you know, they might have been, you know, they might have been raped a lot by the police over there, for example, um, or by you know ordinary people. They might have been like uh, physically abused. Uh, you know they've all obviously been you know on drugs and when i say drugs i'm not talking about uh, like anything usually besides uh, shoe glue and that kind of stuff which is your, your usual sort of uh, street kids drug in uh, east africa and so forth um so a lot of them you know their minds haven't been completely straight uh in that sense and you know obviously most of these guys are super hungry all the time um and they'll do anything for food so we originally just told them, you know, look, you come here, we're going to teach you martial arts, train you, and just help you get an education and so on and so forth, and we'll feed you, mm. you know? And that was the big pull, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, but the thing is, you know, I mean, um, we got the six, and uh, we're sustaining them pretty well at the moment. Uh, you know, we do aim at some point to increase that, you know, you know being, we've got six boys, but obviously the logistics of bringing in six girls as well, um, the, the reality when it comes to, uh, you know, any kind of children's home over there is that if you bring girls in, they end up getting pregnant. Uh, this is just how it goes. Uh, so we need to have like a, a female nanny there on site 24 seven in order to try and sort of reduce the likelihood of that kind of stuff happening. You know, So uh, we haven't got any girls yet and it may be a while before we even, uh, you know, try to jump over that hurdle. But, uh, hey, uh, let's can we, can we just prep there for a second because you bring up an interesting point, which is uh, trying to do some good in a in a in a s scenario or a context or a social structure or a moral structure that is far different from your own, and yeah. uh, you know the balance you have to choose between trying to like fight one thing over the other, like just to do the good, you know. So it's yeah. like that's you know. How, how do you like you must it's a challenge right <laughs> it is but i think you know you, you kind of gotta you gotta kind of stay open-minded you know what i mean uh because everywhere is different and mm -hmm. and i think you've done some of this kind of stuff before in i think in china and stuff mm -hmm. wasn't it if i think like a while back when we were in ireland and chatting to each other in ireland i think you mentioned that you did some of these kinds of things in in china as well and, and my guess is you probably also have to be a little bit open-minded as well, just because, right. <laughs> you know, Canadian culture and Chinese culture is, uh, you know, they're probably two worlds apart as well. 
but yeah, you do just have to stay open-minded and you just like, you know, something, you know, you hear my, you might hear something and you're just like, what? Uh, but you just kind of like take it on the chin and just like, okay, well, let's just try and, uh, you know, what we don't do, actually, what we don't do is we don't try to impose any sort of, uh, of our, don't impose any of our own sort of specific values on these kids. Does that mean? So we tried to enable them to have their own culture and their own lives relative to the place they already live. Mm. You know, what we're just trying to do is make sure that they get the chance to actually live uh, fairly healthily. You know what I mean? So our focus is, is as you know, martial arts, obviously, health, uh, education, that kind of stuff. So, you know, even though you like sort of come across all of these very odd things sometimes, you know, I mean, I, I helped one girl, for example, in uh, Kenya a few years ago. It was like maybe, I think, uh, around seven, eight years ago when we were helping other sort of organizations who help street kids over there. Um, you know, I mean, she had basically been uh, you know, taken by you know, one of her one of her neighbors and tied up and and, and raped repeatedly for for I think it was months. Uh, and and when she finally managed to escape, her dad basically disowned her and took sides with this guy, which was very odd. You know, this is the kind of stuff that you know, like. What is you know, how can that happen? You know, I mean, if I was the father, I would just go and beat the crap out of that. Um, but you know, these are things that you can't really understand, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but but they they kind of understand it over there, and you know, you just sort of have to just take a couple on the chin and just say, all right, well, let me just help you, maybe get a, have a future. Mm. You know, I know the previous experience was traumatizing, and you know, your your dad doesn't like you anymore, or whatever. And, don't have a family and so forth and, and this girl was pregnant actually you know so uh you know she had to deal with that as well so uh, but yeah you just sort of uh, just have to take it you know and uh there's stuff you that I see over there this is like you know so morally reprehensible in my opinion but you know everybody else is sort of sitting around and just chilling with it and it's just uh, you know, i don't want to mention some of the things because they're like yeah probably a bit uh Yes, sir. Well, no, you're just you're just reminding me, like uh, over here uh, on this side of the world, there's uh, like the social unrest and everything, <clears throat> and uh, it, you know, this conversation I was having with a buddy the other day is that there's this kind of thing, like just just injustice and like need and darkness everywhere. It's yeah. everywhere in the world, right? Yeah. And you can kind of get lost in it, but uh, you know, or you could just get focus on the work and focus on, on what you can do. Focus on the change right. you can have. Exactly. Despite all the other shit going on around you, exactly. That, that's the answer. Is focus on what you that's can do. That's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing. You know, yeah. it is focus. Actually, you have you you've hit a, hit the nail on the head. There is that. You know, if you kind of focus, you can blank everything out. Yeah. Everything else yeah. out, and then just uh, get on with the job. That's it. And it's probably <laughs> very similar in security, but you'll know more about that than I will. I mean, so. Uh, I think uh, you know once you uh, what's that saying like uh, once you uh, recognize the way or once you learn the way you recognize it in all things or something. I think it's just yeah, the same concept applies across yeah, all right. topics. Yeah. yeah. Now uh, you, you're ta you're talking about uh, obviously fighting for lives as a martial arts organization. I met you through Vilu uh, Holloway, who is attached to your organization. How, how did you meet Luke? I'm making an assumption right now that it was through Silat. 
since you both have Luke, managed shirt. Luke has been like one of the big gems for fighting for lives, you know. He has been supporting us for such a long time, you know, and he's also he's just a great guy and a good friend, you know what I mean? Um, but basically how I met him was, uh, you know, basically back in 2008, we got in touch and, uh, you know, he was interested in the charity work that I was doing. I was interested in uh, his, you know, raw combat stuff that he was doing. So I actually became a, an instructor in RCI back in 2009. And, uh, you know, we've been just doing stuff together since, you know, meeting up ever since, you know, it's like uh, all over the world, actually. We don't always meet in the same country. Right. Which is kind of cool as well, uh, but, uh, but yeah, he's just like I think he started some projects in Thailand for us uh, way back when, but those had to shut down. Um, he was doing some stuff with a um, like a prison orphanage mm -hmm. over there and uh, helping the kids out, you know, because some of the kids they live with their mothers and stuff in the prison orphanage and kind of stuff. So he was doing some stuff there, and also he was helping us with some of the work in uh, right. Some of the early projects were in Malaysia for, you know, just helping some orphanages in Malaysia. Mm. Uh, they kind of shifted and we kind of shifted focus in Southeast Asia to Indonesia more because the same money goes much further. Mm. So, I mean, so it's, it's an issue of the ringgit versus the, uh, the rupiah. Really. Yeah, it's like yeah. uh, you, if you get, have the chance of helping uh, 15 kids with the same dollar, uh, rather than two kids with the same dollar. I mean, what would you keep? Really? I mean, you, you kind of end up shifting towards the the higher numbers, which, you know, in, in some ways is perhaps also uh, morally incorrect, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it depends, <laughs> depends how you look at it, isn't it? You know what I mean? So, yeah, uh, it really does. <laughs> I think it's relative. <laughs> I mean, you know, you never feel good about just like sort of, just saying, all right, a block sort of, all right, we're going to shift everything, all our focus to Indonesia because it's just, you know, it's just across the border and, you know, we're getting more help there and the, the money goes much further, you know, the, you know, the, the dollar or the euro or the pound or whatever you put in, you know, just helps more kids. So we kind of just made that decision. Right. And it also was just, was uh, just such a big you know, help over there. So Chico uh, was just like 100% down with it. Uh, even gave up everything pretty much to just make sure that Fighting for Lives was uh, running pretty well over there and stuff. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. We did have uh, stuff going on in Sierra Leone as well. I okay. If you uh, remember that stuff. Uh huh. Um, it may be that, you know, we discussed this back in Ireland perhaps, but. Um, when you say Ireland, you say it with an Irish accent, by the way. What's that? So when you say Ireland, you say it with an Irish accent. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't realize that. <laughs> I pick up something from everywhere, right? So, yeah, I know. That's right. You're hard to place. Uh, accent-wise. I don't know if you remember any Irish. Oh, no. What was that? Kalisatatu. That's like an Irish phrase, which is something like, how are you doing? Uh, okay. I'm, I'm ashamed to not know that, but I don't know that. <laughs> Fair enough. I remember going there uh, where we met up. Uh, that was up in Dublin. But if you go, and, and I can understand kind of Irish, just fine, like the accent, no problem. Yeah, go up to Northern Ireland. I was, I was, uh, I was like almost, I, I was straining to hear and kind of understand what was being said. It's such a thick accent. Uh, it was really yeah, hard to I mean, it's interesting how you know a lot of the English, you know, the English-speaking countries have such, you know, such a broad variety of dialects. Some of the ones in Scotland, you know, if you go a bit further north, some of the really colloquial accents are 
you know, they're almost similar to uh, Swedish and stuff. So, if, you know, I mean, I, I can speak Swedish, as you know. And, um, you know, if, if you say in Swedish, uh, shall we go out now? It's like, ska vi gå ut nu? Yeah. Oh, okay. But if you go in the north of Scotland, they're like, shall we go ut nu? You know, right. it's almost exactly the same. Right. <laughs> so, but, uh, uh, but, yeah. How many languages do you speak? Um, properly, I guess only one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I get. I mean, my mother tongue. Well, I lived. I was born in England, so obviously I speak English. But my mother tongue is otherwise a, a Bengali. Okay. Because uh, my parents are from Bangladesh, so I speak Swedish pretty well. Uh, my Finnish is not that great. I have to admit. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I did. Uh, I was uh, two years ago. I spent uh, about a month in the northern, northwest of the Kalahari Desert. Um, and I was learning Jutwansi, which is one of the oldest languages. It's one of the oldest click languages in the world, possibly the oldest one. I, I'm not, I think certain, I think there are older click languages in, uh, like, uh, in Ethiopia from what I've understood. Though. So even though there is a, you know, a, you know, there are quite a few different, uh, click dialects in like, Namibia, Botswana, and even it extends down to, uh, South Africa as well. Um, I think I've heard that the you know the really oldest click languages are actually in a completely different country. But there was that migration, wasn't there? There's been a lot of migration from different parts of Africa, from like uh, I think it's west to east and and then south and that kind of stuff. So uh, is there any relation yeah, between click languages and like cuneiform in terms of like spoken or written words? <laughs> so the written is uh, I mean obviously there were yeah I mean there. Were, the written version is uh, basically using English letters, um, but they just put like lines through certain areas when you just want the click sound. So there are four different clicks uh, in Jutwansi, which is the, the dialect that I was learning. And I think there's like, uh, there aren't that many Jutwansi people left actually. So it was quite nice. To, it took me a year to find these guys. Um, because I needed, I needed a family where somebody could understand English. Uh, and, you know, also since they're not really using any phones or anything, like that, mm -hmm. uh, it's not that easy. So I had to, I mean, I was struggling for ages to try and find, um, you know, a, a family who could actually, who I could actually learn click language from and learn their culture from, learn about their weaponry and their, their lifestyle and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, eventually I was just, you know, I was giving up and then I just happened to be passing through this forum. Uh, and there was like one dude who put a sentence down, said, yeah, there's this like uh, guy in Namibia called Yearn who speaks fluent click. And I thought to myself, you know, I mean, should I even pursue this? I'm tired of trying <laughs> to pursue these channels. Yeah, I mean, uh, but I just thought I contacted that that uh, person who wrote that, and they said, "Yeah, this, you know, this is the the number." So I, I called this guy up, and he was like, "Yeah, I'll help you out, no problem." And I was like, you know, I had asked so many people, and they were all like, "No, we can't help you." You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this one guy, you know, he was just like, "Yeah, no problem, just you know, come come here, right?" Uh, and I'll introduce you to the family. Oh wow! Uh, and that that worked out really well. So. 
So what? So uh, for the audience, what uh, what is it that brought you to uh, to the desert there to learn the language and to live with people? Oh, so basically at that time, uh, that's pretty much when I moved to Edinburgh in the first instance, and I moved on a uh, senior Marie Curry fellowship. And uh, these and are really that? cool fellowships. University of Edinburgh. Uh, sorry, sorry, University of Edinburgh. Yeah. Okay. So uh, basically, for those fellowships, you need to move to a different country, so you can't stay in the country you're at. So I actually and I moved to uh, Edinburgh and I had this fellowship and uh, basically these fellowships are about you know they they have a specific scientific project which I was working on um, but then they also provide lots of funds for other forms of development and one of the funding packages they provide to their fellows is uh, a package for learning a new language and I thought to myself, well, all these other Marie Curie fellows, uh, they learn, for example, French or German, Spanish or whatever. I thought to myself, this is like way too boring. Now, I need to learn <laughs> the most obscure, oldest language on the planet that I can find. And I thought to myself, well, the click languages are, are pretty <laughs> much the oldest, right? And uh, the good thing is, you know, by doing that, I got to have my own little adventure as well out there because, you know, I got to learn... Uh, an entirely different culture that I wasn't, you know, familiar with. I was, you know, I mean, I was just wearing pretty much a g-string in the desert because they, <laughs> they didn't wear clothes either. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, uh, and I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want to obviously be the guy, you know, with. Uh, you don't want to be that guy. Yeah, you know what I mean. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, the stuff they do is amazing. I mean, they they have all sorts. Of, they really understand the bush, and you know, they understand how to. Uh, draw medicines from the bush and all sorts of stuff. It's like amazing, you know, it's like, and the stuff they do, you know, it's like guy who got bitten by a puff adder, you know, usually those guys, they, they don't make it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but well, you know, the, the medicine man, um, this guy, you know, he basically, uh, he did this uh, fire dance and then he went into a trance and during these chances, it's really strange, you know, cause they, what, what they tell me is that they go into another world uh, where they meet their ancestors and stuff. And then they, they get knowledge from the ancestors that they bring back, you know, to deal with specific problems or incidents that they face, right? And, you know, while he's going into this trance, like literally every muscle in his body is shaking. And it looks so strange because, you know, I don't know how you can physically do that. You know, I mean, I don't know if you try, try it, you know, when you have time, you know, maybe tomorrow morning or whatever, just, just try and induce a seizure. It's just impossible, right? Uh, but this guy, you know, he, when he starts doing this, uh, you know, they, they have, have a specific ritual and then at some point, you know, he'll go into a trance and all of his muscles start moving like crazy, right? And uh, that's the point at which he kind of goes into this other world and comes back with new knowledge and on this occasion he just came back and he like you know basically uh, straight away went to these different uh, trees and things drilled holes in this guy's knee you know made this little you know, potion from roots of trees and other leaves and whatever have you and then squid it in and, and this guy was fine and he, he he literally has from where the puff adder bit just these two little marks and nothing else and usually you know you'll have some uh, Degradation of the of the muscle and the flesh and, and yeah the yeah it's like that fleshing disease yeah, or whatever yeah. yeah but you don't really see much of that you just see these two little uh, two little marks and it's pretty amazing actually pretty amazing stuff so 
Yeah, I saw, I happened to, you know, because I was there for about a month, so I saw three of those. And every time, he was, uh, one, uh, one of them, he was like literally grabbing these red hot coals and just rubbing them on his body. And he, everything was fine. He didn't get any burns or anything. It was very strange. You know, I'm, that was the first time I've come across that. So. <laughs> it reminds me of some of the feats that you see like the Shaolin monks do, like on, on their tours where they like yeah. bend rebar and get little like right. electric cars driven over them and like break yeah. spikes with their testicles and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, this is, this is, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and actually that, that's uh, prevalent in the martial arts world. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like uh, in Indonesia, for example, uh, in Banten, they, uh, they practice debus there, which is like, you know, basically calling upon the spirit world and so forth and strengthening yourself through that. And, um, you know, those guys will be like, you know, taking sharp machetes, they'll be rubbing them against their bodies on their tongues. They'll be putting, you know, spikes through their, they, they actually stab each other, each other as well. They'll actually stab each other. You know, and they'll be stabbing each other in the chest. You'll see blood coming out, and and then they just sort of carry them away. Now I don't know what happens to those guys. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the guys who have quite a documentary. They're still kind of there. You know, they're doing their thing. You know, and uh, but you know, a lot of the others who get stabbed, they just sort of carry them away because they're in like very deep trances. That's the thing. They they need really deep trances. I don't even know. If you lose too much blood, blood, they call that kind of a trance of coma. <laughs> possible. A very deep coma. It's possible that it's the same thing, you know? So yeah, yeah. I think those, those things are good for surgeries as well. Uh, I used so to, I back, back <laughs> in what I call the strange days, I was a uh, right winger yep. Pentecostal. And yep. uh, speaking of trances of people convulsing and shaking like, you know, fish out yep. of water, flopping yep. around or whatever and doing all yep. the crazy stuff. Yeah, uh, I see that, but now coming out on the other side of that, I look back at it and I'm like, oh, that's an interesting study. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, this, you know, the human body is capable of many weird things that yeah. uh, most of us aren't exposed to. You know mm. what I mean? So, and even the fact that, you know, we can survive long periods of time when we don't expect to, you know, with no food and water and stuff. Uh, you know, I think a lot of that stuff was also relate, you know, somehow connects. To, uh, your mindset as well to some mm. extent you know what I mean um, but who knows you know I mean I can't speak for everybody because uh, I haven't studied any of this stuff myself so uh, not in any depth or detail just superficially it's fascinating I mean? stuff fascinating stuff even like uh, uh, you've heard of Wim Hof of what Wim Hof you call him the what? ice man so nope. basically he uh, the guy like swims in basically frozen waters he walks he, he, he kind of like walks in like arctic temperatures just in like shorts and like yep. a pair of sneakers that's it no oh, like I, shirt yeah. no. you know and uh he's like super uh super um uh i, want, I don't want to say verse. i'm losing it. my words are, are not are escaping me right now <laughs> it's, been, it's been a long day three kids yeah, early, no early morning. <laughs> but uh he basically comes with stand the cold and uh, he teaches like breathing technique and this or that and uh, he has like a coaching system and and then other people like you'll see you'll see like his uh his his fans go out and like do their polar dips or like sit in a chunk of ice water or you know freeze themselves or whatever the case is and just be like yeah. walking yeah. around in the winter with like nothing on and doing fine yeah so there's certainly an element to that no doubt yeah that's quite common in finland actually to some extent 
uh, although it's becoming less common. Uh, it's more the older generation who do mm. that here. The uh, robust uh, ones. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I think uh, a, a lot of it might also come down to breathing. You know, breathing exercise. A lot of a lot of people do uh, pretty decent breathing exercise, and you know that's something that helps with the with the fighting as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you if you want to hit somebody properly, you you need to know how to breathe. Yeah. You know what I mean, <laughs> uh, and you, you want to do um, anything, you got to breathe. Sorry, so you want to do anything, you got to breathe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's right. Except to survive underwater. Right. This is true. Yeah. Well, actually, there's uh, to even that. Uh, yeah. There's techniques, there's breathing techniques to prep That's yourself right. for going underwater for a long period That's of time true. to oxygenate That's your true. blood. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, you know, I, uh, you know, I when when my kids were young, you know, I used to take um, swimming. Uh, just we'd break through the ice and we'd go swimming from about uh, March until October, pretty much mm-hmm. every day, yeah, uh, in the sea, and uh, you know. My kids got used to, and also me as well, got used to these really cold water temperatures, you know, and uh, it takes, you know, you kind of ramp it up because mm-hmm. when you first dip in, like the first time you break through the ice and you just, you know, kind of go in, it's like all your muscles just contract, you know, everything goes into spasm, your neck, you feel your neck go crank. Can't talk. Uh, it's <laughs> horrible, you know what I mean? So, but uh, then, you know, as each day goes by, you can stay in a bit longer. And what you do notice is that, or what I noticed is that when you first go in, uh, and this happens every year, you go in and you're just like, it's just kind of hyperventilating. But then yeah. within a few days, you start realizing that what you need to do is you need to relax everything see then we started going in just starting relaxing just and you can stay longer so it, it it changes from like 20 seconds to one and a half minutes and it makes a huge difference you know mm. the way you breathe in freezing cold water it makes mm. a huge difference and you know there was a time actually because you know i had done this um for nine years and you know i started when my kids were pretty young uh and Obviously, they absolutely hated me for it uh, year after year. It's like, why do we have to do this? You know? <laughs> and, but then, like, after nine years, I started questioning myself. I started thinking to myself, you know, I mean, is this necessary? Yeah, because none of them have fallen through the ice. But then, like, that year, my son fell through the ice. Mm. And he was okay. He just kind of, like, he fell through the ice, and he just relaxed. He grabbed onto the edge, you know lifted his legs up and waited for me to come and help, you know, and it was just, um, I felt good that they had nine or so years of training before that because most people, they they don't, a lot of people die from the cold shock and how the cold shock affects their body. You know what I mean? Uh, Rather than from the fact that they can't swim, that you can have very strong swimmers who just fall up into the ice and their, their body goes into this culture. They have this massive adrenaline dump. And they're just like, and then they kind of float underneath the current, takes them under the ice, and that's pretty much the end of it. Yeah. Um, but if you can deal with the cold shock, that's potentially what can save your life. Mm. So that was my aim, and you know, thankfully it worked out. You know, to the positive. So. Speaking of uh, kids, Happy Father's Day! It's still uh, 
We're still holding on to uh, Father's Day here for another half hour. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. Happy Father's Day, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. You. Uh, the thing is, you don't look old enough to have kids the age that they are. <laughs> Everybody says that. Yeah. Everybody says that, you know. But I think it must be just the genes or something. But yeah, yeah I did start young. So yeah, uh, that's fair. I, I should. I should probably admit I started younger than the average. Right. Let's just put it like that. <laughs> you, you came out of the, you came out of the womb and you turned around to the doctor and said, "Hold That's on, there's like, a couple okay, more on the way." The time, you know, <laughs> a couple so. more on the way. Yeah, just give him a second. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I turned forty-five this year, so you know, I'm, I'm starting to feel it in my bones, in my in my joints and stuff. So yeah, well, a little bit. You know, a lot of you got, the skin, you got the skin going on. I think so. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of that's just because of the skateboarding, because the martial arts is actually pretty good for your joints. Ah. But skateboarding is what wrecked my joints and my body mostly, because I did, you know, I did a lot of skateboarding when I was younger, and that entails, uh, you know, lots of high drops and, you know, especially because I, I rode vert, uh, like you know, uh, you'd be falling like <laughs> 150 times a day from four or five meters. Right. I can't be doing your joints that much good. No, you know probably I mean? not. It's fun though. Fun though. Fun while your joints last. Yeah. Exactly. Fun while you still got knees. <laughs> exactly. Well, I'm, I'm I'm taking a lot of this MSM these days okay. to deal with that problem. You know what I mean? So uh, MSM seems to be pretty pretty good. You know, at uh, I don't know. It's, it's I think that's one of the things they say kind of disappears when uh, when you cook meat, isn't it? Uh I've I've heard about like the, just basically the B vitamins kind of like yeah yeah you know? yeah yeah but yeah I've I've I don't know I've heard that it you know kind of disappears to some extent when you cook meat okay. so uh, you know I take these to sort of uh, help with if I, if I consume for example this word cartilage and tendons <laughs> that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. um, so it sort of uh, helps take the stuff from there. I don't exactly know it, how it works, but it's basically you can buy this in in horse uh, horse food shops because okay. they use it to uh, strengthen the joints of horses. You Check know? this out. It'll just be yeah. like a poor man's version. You can do this at home yourself, and yeah. uh, you feed eggs. You uh, you basically take the shells. Yeah. You. Uh, Lay them out on like a cookie sheet or whatever in the oven. You dry them out on low heat until they're nice and dry. You grind yeah. them up. You put them. You go get like whatever uh, kind of gelatin capsules or whatever, and you just pop those, and they have a shit ton of uh, calcium in there. And uh, really, and yeah, right, yeah. Stuff well, the calcium for sure, but I think they have lots of other good proteins as well, don't oh, they? Oh, tons. Because yeah, the but, proteins uh, will be basically binding the. Uh, the calcium together, yeah. isn't it? And so, no one wants to eat the eggshell, but if you just grind it up after it's dried and put it in a little pill, and you know, yeah, you yeah. So it can help help with our, our, our aging joints as as we get older. Yeah, home. it's brilliant. I mean, actually, it's funny, you know, because um, a lot of countries uh, still will use most of the animal if they kill an animal. Mm. They'll still use most of it. You know what I mean? So they'll consume. Like, uh, or at least they'll boil the bones and, and extract stuff from there. They'll the marrow, the lungs, meats. they'll consume the brains, yeah. you know, the heart, everything else. You know, things that uh, a lot of people don't want to eat in the Western world because we've mm. become sort of a customized just having only the meat and stuff. But actually, you know, I think all the other parts are, are pretty good as well for your, mm. for your health. Huge. They're the most nutrient-dense, like the most right. nutrient-dense. Yeah, you know? yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, there you go. <laughs> how uh, speaking of your joints, how because uh, your love is your love is capoeira. I remember you saying. Right? So how how are you doing these days with capoeira? <laughs> I love capoeira, man. I I still do it, you know, because I'm actually the lockdown in Scotland was really detrimental to my physical health mm. because you know in Scotland I kind of live in a little box and there's not much space for doing stuff and. Um, yeah, so I'm basically, uh, yeah, I was missing the capoeira then. I was trying to do it in this little box that I'm in. And it's difficult because you're kind of flipping over the sofas and whatever have you, you know. Uh, but uh, but now I'm back in Finland, it's pretty cool because I've got tons of space. So I can uh, move about more easily and uh, there aren't any lockdowns here. And, so forth, you know? and uh, yeah, capoeira, I found, was the best thing for my body. You know, I do, uh, you know, I do a lot of silat, as you, as you know, as well. and um, other sort of arts, uh, but capoeira is the one that helped my body the most because to retain its flexibility and you know also to strengthen different parts of my body um, that I wasn't managing to strengthen, you know, through uh, silat and stuff. So uh, you know, I mean, it depends which silat style, of course, you're talking about because they're all different. Thousands mm -hmm. of different styles in Indonesia, and every single one focuses on a different sort of aspect of uh, physicality and philosophy and, and that kind of stuff. So also, you know, they're all sort of geographically inclined as well right. uh, mm -hmm. and culturally inclined. Um, so, uh, but yeah, capoeira is, is brilliant. But capoeira actually has uh, potentially a link to uh, Silat anyway. I don't know if you know that. No. There you go. So Carry on. Uh, you might have heard some of these, uh, some of the songs like La La We, La La We, La La We, La La La. Uh, so some of these capoeira songs, you know, I start wondering to myself, you know, what's going on with these la-la ways and so forth, uh, etc. Because, you know, these are not Portuguese words. And I asked my teacher as well, you know, he was like, yeah, they have no meaning in Portuguese. We don't really know what they mean. And then you know, they're also using like uh, these drums called atabak, which is an Arabic drum. And if you look at the uh, slave trading history from... Mm -hmm. You know, Malawi, Maui, Angola, and so forth. There are a lot of Sufis uh, in those areas who were brought over to uh, to South America, to Brazil. And obviously, the Sufis they would have been speaking you know, to some extent Arabic. At least they would have been uh, chanting in Arabic for like religious reasons, so forth, and like Laila, Hailala, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, you know, there's a clear link between the musical element. And uh, the Sufis, now the Sufism came to that part of the world from the Dutch slave trade from Indonesia to Africa. You see what I mean? And uh, if you look at certain styles, like horse style of Silat, for example, um, <clears throat> they do very similar movements, actually. Uh, if you look at bear styles of Silat, yeah, from certain areas of Indonesia, you know, they also have similar kinds of movements. So, you know, I think there are, you know, I'm, I can't say for sure, I can't explicitly say that there are, you know, definite links between Silat and Indonesia, but I have a strong feeling. And do proper research in this, you would find that there is a, you know, a global sort of slave yeah. trade route that starts from Indonesia and brings its way through Africa all the way over to Brazil. And that's, you know, 
that's you know part part of the martial you know cultural heritage also you know that's part of the martial history of capoeira i suppose um if it were if it were found to be true but uh, who knows i think somebody needs to do some proper research into that kind of <laughs> with martial arts there's there's not a lot of academic research that's done into uh, the no, a lot of a lot of a lot of bro science though. <laughs> exactly, that's the thing. That's the thing. But we need to we need to dismantle that somehow, yeah. and and you know just to make sure that people can take us seriously, right? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, that'll take time though. I think you know. Yeah. So. Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, I, I'm just I just I just published a. Uh, a small article, a feature article in Materials World on the... Uh, Sorry, in which? In Materials World. Okay. On the Jute Bunsi arrows. And I've got a, a paper on the same arrows uh, in the SN Applied Sciences. Yeah. Are these from the sort people of that you studied? At the moment. Sorry? Sorry, these are the, weapon, the weaponry from the people that you studied when you went on your... Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. So they have really interesting uh, arrows, for example. You know, I mean, they... You know, the earlier arrows were made of roots. They used to dry these roots okay. from a, a plant called Rus teneveris. And uh, basically, the root of this plant becomes very, very hard when it dries. And they would shape their arrowhead from this root, and they would make the balance as part of that carving, right? But then, uh, latter arrows, they, you started using giraffe shin bones. Um, and uh, basically, they would carve a certain shape, which is kind of conical kind of shape, out of giraffe shin bones. They would insert it into a uh, small segment of reinforced, like reed that's reinforced laterally using uh, like uh, giraffe uh, Achilles tendon. Uh, and then they would make a balance out of giraffe shin bone as well, so that they'd have the balance, you know. And, and this, you know, our research on this, because we did some research at University of Edinburgh on this kind of stuff. And we actually found that, because um, the, the medicine man told me when I was over there that, yeah, we, we make this little link here so it breaks off and then we can retrieve the rest of the arrow. Do you see what I mean? And it's like, it's very finely tuned engineering that they've done and material science that they've done there. And this, you know, basically, we, we've published one article on this and we're publishing the second one Hopefully soon. It's just you know it's uh, going under review. At the moment. It's it's under review actually, and I've, I've got some first stage comments, but there's going to be obviously a few more um, comments that come back and forth between myself and the reviewers. But uh, you know we did some finite element modeling as well of the shapes, okay, um, and found that uh, you know the the way that they have shaped the arrow heads is like optimal for the material that they're using. So you know, after the Germans came and basically took over Namibia and stuff, um, I can't remember when that was like, I think it was close to the first or something like that, um, in terms of, uh, you know, time-wise. Um, but basically, the Germans brought uh, iron, ductile iron with them. Right. So they made lots of fences and things out of ductile iron. And a lot of the Sun people and, you know, Jute Plancy included, of course, would actually, they started using this iron from the fences to make different tools. So, and, and one of the things they made were, were modernized arrowheads. And, and those ones, they shaped like, uh, you know, the normal arrowheads you see. So with a tip that's triangular, that's flattened, and then a shaft that uh, then goes into this reed. 
And, you know, from our, you know, from our finite element simulations of these things, we actually found that they have optimized the shape relative to the material that they use. So, the bone versus the metal. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting, you know, what they've done. And, and these are the kinds of things I think that we need to be doing with, you know, the martial heritage around the world anyway. Mm. You know what I mean? So I've got a friend um, in, uh, who's coming over to do some research. He's from Kenya. And he's actually, uh, you know, one of the board members of Fighting for Lives Kenya, actually. So he's like helping out with the kids a lot over there. But he also happens to be uh, an academic at Moore University. And he's a Turkana. So his uh, tribal background is Turkana people, which they're from the very north of Kenya. Very, very rough place, actually. You know, it's like uh, if you haven't been shot up there, then you probably haven't lived there for you know, more than a week. You know what I mean? So <laughs> it's just, you know, that area is really, really rough. And he's from that place. And there they fight with these uh, wrist blades called Arait. Yeah. And so he's going to bring some over in, in January. And we're going to, I'm going to set up a student project, you know, a student group project with these, uh, with these wrist blades as well. And interesting, you know, because um, to get married as a Turkana, uh, person, you need to uh, basically you're, you need to be able to win a fight against your wife or future wife, right? And if you can't beat her, she's not going to accept you because so you have to uh, cut her up, you know, or you're not. You're, you're obviously no good, <laughs> you know. If wow. you can't fight even her and win, yeah, <laughs> how are you going to protect the cows, for example? And the cows equal life. Up it's valid, if you it's valid point. Cow, you're pretty much a you're dead meat. You know what right. I mean? So uh, it's like, and you know, they will actually, you know, in some cases, not always, but the woman, she might even take a, a, a wrist blade and she might start smashing, you know, this guy and he'll have big scars and gashes, you know, in his head, on his body and so forth, just from these wrist blades. Uh, and if he happens to win and, and she accepts him then, she will fix him up. And if not, he has to probably go to his mom to get fixed up, you know, or something like that. So I don't know. I don't know what happens after that. But, you know, as long as you can win that fight, you have a wife. You know? Man, if only it were that easy over here, eh? <laughs> <laughs> you think it's easy. You think it's easy. I think some of these women are pretty tough, man. No, I'm just joking, man. That's crazy. <laughs> Man, I couldn't imagine. Like, oh, I, I have like, I, in order to marry you, I have to hurt you now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's it's, uh, <laughs> it's strange. You know, it's strange. But I think you know, again, it comes down to uh, uh, what is needed, and what the women need there is a strong man who can defend them against other guys, other tribes, against the bullets from mm. Somalia, from Uganda, from. You know, again, you know, against thieves who are stealing the cows and mm -hmm. all of this kind of stuff, you know. So, you know, if you don't have a, a, a strong enough guy, it could just mean the end of your family. That's it. That's it. It's just how <laughs> it is. I mean, it it's, is what uh, it is, eh? We're all, in different, we're all in different places in Maslow's hierarchy, I guess, right? <laughs> that's, that's right. That's yeah. right, you know. So... <laughs> But, you know, I mean, I think, you know, there, there are so many different things out there, so many things that we would see. As, oh, there's, a, there's a tribe in Kenya that I'm going to try to find, uh, maybe the next time I go, actually, uh, who are the underwater tribe. They still live underwater, you know, 
and I think there's it's a very small tribe now. I think there's less than 140 people. What do you mean by live underwater? They live underwater. Like, so, are these the ones that swim underwater all the time and, like, just kind of, like, they float on the water and then they, they kind of function underwater? But, or, like, are you talking about people with gills? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. So I think you're, you may be talking about, like, uh, so those guys, uh, they are in Indonesia, those okay. guys that you're talking about the ones who do the, the deep free diving and yeah. they've got like uh, actual physical uh, adaptations to their eyes and their skin because of their aquatic life. I don't, you know, not many people know about this other tribe in Kenya who live underwater, but they basically, they stay underwater during the daylight hours. And then when it's night, they come out of the water to do their stuff. So it could be hunting, you know, eating, whatever. How do they breathe when they're underwater? Like, are they in Okay, so underwater? they don't, they, they are up to their chins. Oh, I see, I see. In the water. So they don't, they don't go fully submerged. Yeah. I should probably point that out. Now, like, this is amazing. We have, like, <laughs> Otherwise, that would be a very here. useful adaptation right. that we all Justice League is real. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, I, it's funny, you know, because Aquaman... From what I understand, his uh, his undergraduate degree was in marine biology. Okay. There you go. As a person living by his uh, <laughs> by That's his right. That's right. Uh, while we're on that topic, what is it? Because you talked about the Fellowship University of Edinburgh. What is it you teach? You're into? We we talked briefly so, about this um, with. Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. So at Edinburgh, you know, I actually teach uh, mechanical engineering disciplines. So it could be stuff on solid mechanics, stuff on composites, mechanical design. Uh, numerical modeling, you know, anything to do with mechanical engineering, which is pretty broad. Uh, it just depends on what, uh, you know, my bosses will tell me to teach right. in that particular year. Right. You know what I mean? So, uh, upper, like uh, my last year's, last year's course on mechanical design, I'm not going to teach that now. I'm going to be taking more of the uh, supervision for research projects. But uh, in terms of the research that I do, uh, it's a lot of biomimetic uh, design. And uh, it's a lot of metamaterial science and engineering. So on the biomimetic side of things, um, I do, you know, I basically research biology, try to understand, you know, how these things actually work, you know, how structure and function are related, and then try to apply that to modern technology. So that obviously takes a bit of, uh, you know, a bit of simplification because right. biological manufacturing uh, industries, let's call them, yeah, uh, are far advanced to any manufacturing technologies we have mm -hmm. at the moment. So biology will manufacture at the nanoscale, at the molecular scale, at every possible length scale. And, you know, to a degree of accuracy that we, you know, are unable to mimic. So what we need to do is we need to, you know, if you look at the sky and you see, you know, the, it's blue and it's got clouds, right? But if you're an artist, you'll look at the sky and you'll see, okay, so that, area there, that little dot there is is uh, black that little dot there is uh, super dark blue that's like light blue that's white just I mean and by pulling together all these pieces of that or oh, pixelating so to speak or discretizing the sky they can paint the sky because they've managed to break it down so in similitude you know if we are uh, looking at a, a structure function relationship in biology so I try to for example um, simplify the structure and try to mimic the effect by, you know, 
by simplifying the structure, but without simplifying it too much. You try to chunk it to broader categories, but not too broad. Make it simple, but exactly, not too simple. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it needs to be something that we can actually manufacture. You know, so if we can't manufacture it, then uh, there's no point even trying. So, I mean, now obviously there, you know, we can now, you know, there's a there's a big push in the world of synthetic biology. So there is the possibility of starting to form recombinant proteins and that kind of stuff. But that's still more biomaterial. I'm actually trying to take, for example, shapes and structures in nature that have specific functions and apply those, you know, using more typical materials like, um, you know, metals and uh, polymers and ceramics and stuff. And then on the other side, you know, I'm also looking at metamaterials. And these are shapes and structures that don't exist in nature. Yeah. Shapes, structures, and functions don't exist in nature. So um, these are, all, you know, all sorts of shapes that you can imagine. And we're trying to basically model these, uh, try to understand how shapes function. We're trying to like generatively design them. So you know, use AI and machine learning algorithms to change the structures and try to find out, like for example, if you have a shape like this that doesn't exist in nature, you know. How does it, you know, how does it, how well does it hold load, for example, and is that actually better than something that already exists? exists? Right. Um, and if it is, great. If it isn't, then it might have a, a secondary function right. that's uh, useful. So that's sort of where my research goes. I do a lot of stuff with robotics as well, okay. uh, especially from the bio-inspired side of things. So, you know, I... A lot of the stuff I do in Indonesia is also research. So I do a lot of work with uh, Gajah Mada University, for example, and um, I've been doing a lot of research on the animals. I don't know if you, uh, so I mean, uh, if you follow any of the British newspapers, but we were just like uh, a few weeks ago, we were in the Daily Mail and we were in the Newsweek and uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, because of this work that we did on a tree, a fish, it's a fish in Indonesia, called Periophthalmus variabilis, right? I always struggle with the Latin names, excuse me. But it climbs trees, right? But this specific fish also hops on the surface of the water. So it doesn't submerge. It just hops on the water. You know, it can submerge. It can swim, of course, as well. But it'll jump off a tree, hop across the water, jump onto another tree. So, you know, some of the projects, for example, that I'm developing for some of the students at Embra, uh, you know, can we make a... Uh, a robot that mimics the kinematics of this fish. Mm. So far, no, but we will. Right. You know, one day. <laughs> it's not easy. It's very difficult because it uses a very, very fast and abrupt tail motion to actually instigate the hopping across right. the water, which is it's very, like a very skipping easy. stone, basically, like a yes, somehow propelling exactly. itself. Right? It's exactly like a skipping stone, except that it propels itself for each skip as well. So it will have that angular sort of uh, angle of attack that's important. But each time it hits the water, it'll also propel itself so it can just keep going. So, yeah, it's pretty cool stuff, you know. Uh, I also do a lot of stuff, uh, you know, the last big area that I work on is what is known as these uh, GCRF. So the UK government has put in 1.5 billion pounds per year to addressing global challenges. So this could be anything like clean water or uh, dealing with the plastic pollution or waste management. Or climate challenges? Sorry? Yeah, uh, specific to climate challenges? 
global climate yeah, challenges. Yeah, exactly. So global challenges, usually in low income countries or low to medium income countries where they don't have, you know, um, that kind of stuff going. So, so some of the stuff, for example, I did in Indonesia was to uh, develop these uh, plastic extrusion and shredding, shredding and extrusion machines that could be used by local villages to create a circular, circular economy. And it worked out, you know, that they, the villagers at the, this coast in Gunung Kidul, they're taking plastic bottles from the sea, they're shredding, extruding them, they're making money from the extruded plastics, which mm. are being recycled. You know what I mean? And there's 30 people employed at this SME that we mm. started over in Indonesia, which is brilliant as well, because it increases the local economy um, and, you know, helps the villagers earn a bit more money, a bit, you know, in, in an area outside of fishing, let's say. Um, uh, in uh, you know, in Nepal, for example, and you'll probably notice that I, I tie in uh, a lot of these uh, global challenges with uh, areas where we also do work for Fighting for Lives, and there is a purposeful reason for that. Is because you know, with Fighting for Lives, as you know, all of our money goes directly to the kids, right? Mm -hmm. So we cover our own travel costs, our own accommodation costs, and so forth. So if I can get there on a research project then I can also dedicate the week to the Fighting for Life stuff. Right, but, I, right. you know, I don't have to take this money from my family and then put that into, uh, you know, the several sort of uh, right. FFL trips that I'll do each year, which can be draining because, you know, obviously, you know, I make my own just donations anyway each year. But then if I'm also doing that, then there's not going to be much left for my family, which is not good. Um, so, uh, you know, so I try to tie these in with uh, research projects mm. because that helps me get there. Does that mean? That's perfect. That's perfect. That's, that makes perfect sense. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> perfect. You know what I mean? So I, one thing, I mean, in Nepal, for example, the stuff there is, uh, that we're doing is with e-waste. I don't know if you know much about electronic waste. So there's, there's, uh, uh, like, oh, you, like you'll send people in to like basically collect uh, like metal, precious metal scraps from inside the, is that what you're talking so about? So that's what's being done. So okay. that's certain countries like India, they do that already. Yeah, but yeah. what I'm doing in Nepal is uh, basically taking the e-waste and making robots that can work in agriculture. So the first robot we're trying to make, haven't made it yet, but you know, the first one we're trying to make is a cow milking robot, for example. Um, you know, and then another thing we're doing in Kenya um, it, with more university is we are trying to basically hack biomedical machines because one of the big issues they have in Kenya when it comes to the healthcare system is that lots of people die because they can't afford the equipment, you know, and if they can afford it, they buy it in, nobody knows how to use it, nobody knows how to maintain it, so if it goes bust, they just waste all this money. So what we're doing is we're basically uh, hacking these biomedical machines to make them work in different ways and reverse engineering, uh, you know, biomedical machines and tools and that kind of stuff so that they have really cheap versions that function mm -hmm. and can be used in the healthcare system. And uh, that's what this guy is, you know, this guy, he's an FFL guy, um, he's coming over to Edinburgh in January, you know, to work on exactly this kind of stuff. Awesome. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, I, there's, you know, everything is connected in that sense, you know, Amazing. so I, I kind of just make things work uh, in the way I want them to work. I mean, you're, well, yeah, exactly. You're, the field that you're in, right, kind of goes right into reverse engineering those biomedical machines and everything like that. Like it, which goes back into the medical clinics that you have set up in the like. It's all, 
exactly. into each other, right? And, uh, exactly, exactly. And I, you know, to be honest with you, I really like these uh, global challenges uh, projects just because they're also humanitarian at the end of the day projects. Mm. So they, you, you, you see, whereas you know, the biomedic stuff I do and the material stuff I do, that's kind of like uh, very futuristic in one sense. Uh, with the global challenges projects, you see the difference immediately. Mm-hmm. You know, so you start a project within a year, you might see that, you know, like, for example, in Indonesia, this community has got a company that's running and they're cleaning the ocean and it's working. Is that what I mean? Um, yeah. I'm hoping that with Nepal, we see, you know, within the next one to two years, something similar happening there. The e-waste is just, it's not just being dumped into landfills. It's not being burnt or incinerated. It's growing but it's actually being reused. <laughs> it's being upcycled. Essentially. Yeah. Is that what I mean? So, you know, it's, it's nice in that sense, the global challenges, just because you see the actual change fairly swiftly. And if something's not working, you notice fairly swiftly as well. So, I think you maybe hit on a, a point there for high output individuals, <laughs> people that do a lot, because yeah. you do a lot. And uh, <laughs> I think if you're in that situation where you can have all the things, the different things you're doing relate to each other, that's how you can pull it off. Because how can you have a family a full-time job career that you're dedicated and invested in, uh, you know, a, a, a side charity that's not just like a side little thing, but that has several different locations in several different countries and the boards and boards to report to yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and then the fellowships on top of that and then the research yeah. studies and then that, you know, and then, yeah. and then, and then, well, if it can all relate. And then the cap where <laughs> That, yeah, you, you absolutely hit the nail on the head because if, if you can't get them to relate, you will burn out yeah. because one human being can only do so much, right? That's right. <laughs> so <laughs> there has to be something that uh, that connects all the dots. Otherwise, yeah. You know, and you do see people burn out all the time, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and those are probably the guys that didn't manage to uh, connect all the dots and have one kind of common, you know, theme of commonality between everything that they're doing. So, I mean, so... Uh, yeah. But, you know... <laughs> Hopefully there'll be less of that. You know, you know it's, it's not nice to see people burn out. To be honest with you, no. Um, I, I see a lot of a lot of colleagues every now and again. You know, they 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 will burn out, and it's not not cool to watch. No, no, man. It's uh, I, I find myself in a fortunate scenario these days. But uh, uh, you know, right now I'm on a, a rotating schedule, so that's uh, you know, when that when that. I see the light at the end of the tunnel, and that's finally here. I'll I'll be uh, I'll be back on a regular so regular shift. Are you, you're basically doing nights and stuff. You know, you, you do you work overnight, or do you like alternate between day and night, or? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's pretty tough. That's actually pretty tough. I know that because you know if I do stuff in the jungle or or at sea, uh, you know, the sampling is sometimes night sampling, sometimes it's day sampling, mm-hmm. and that's physically very difficult. Yeah. You know, especially if like you know. You see, the tide, it doesn't, it's not linear, the change in tide and, and so forth. So That's right. To have no, it's a not. Certain, you know, height of tide, you need to do something at 2 a.m. one day, and the next day it'll be at, you know, 4 p.m. And, and so on and so forth, right? And it's physically very, very difficult. You have to have some level of, uh, you know, stubbornness, I think, as well, to get through that kind of lifestyle. But um, you talked you know, about I know uh, a, lot of the, a lot of my friends who are bodyguards, they kind of have similar lifestyles. You, you talked about, I mean, your background in, in looking at nature and seeing how basically evolution produces perfectly structured thing that we can't even replicate. 
Now, why do we think our internal systems are any different? <laughs> you know, right, right. That's true. And actually, we are we are very adaptable. As we and we're going back to an earlier point now about like adaptation and you know how the human body is actually able to take a lot. You know, and that shows also in in a lot of modern working styles where you have this uh, you know this sort of split between day working and night working, which actually mess up your circadian rhythm mm -hmm. uh, significantly. But you know, you just get through it. You know, because people just get through. Yeah, <laughs> that's just how it goes, isn't it? It's, uh, a lot of it is mindset. Uh, a lot of it is your body as well. You know, your. But I think with the circadian rhythm, there's so much that your body can take. It's, it's, uh, it's a real thing. Really, <laughs> really real feeling thing. it, you know. So I don't know if it's just me, but, you know, for myself, if I'm doing uh, a few months of that um, and I'm like, you know, out at sea, for example, someone, I find it difficult. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's just physically. So you kind of like go through these mental periods where you're just like, why the how am I doing this? Yeah. <laughs> my my <laughs> wife loves I it. Because I enjoyed this, you know? <laughs> my, wife, my wife loves it because on my nights off where I'm at home, I'm up for, because uh, we have the, the two little ones now, right? So yeah. uh, if the baby who wants like milk or whatever, he'll, uh, she sleeps, he sleeps in, in our room. But yeah. uh, if my daughter gets up, then, you know, that's me. I'll respond. So she gets to sleep in bed. Because if it's nights before I'm working, yeah. like I can't like be off the night. So she'll take care of both of them. But yeah. on nights that I'm off, then the next day, or if, if I'm night I'm off here, or the day I'm off the next day, I'll uh, yeah. I'll be the one that goes in and handles her. So yeah, she's you like, know, oh, I mean, this like, great. <laughs> the, you know, the age your kids are at is like, uh, a, you know, anyway, it's a physically demanding age, actually. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, it is. <laughs> because uh, you know, I you know, I think back to when my kids were that small, and I was just like, you know, we hardly slept. You know, we or we hardly slept comfortably. I'd say we were up mm. every couple hours you know and it just kept going like that for a long time because you think you just got it down and then they become sick oh you know? yeah and then they maybe they're vomiting or having diarrhea and you know they need other help you know or you know you need to give them medicines regularly or that kind of stuff and um and then you think you got it down and then they just don't want to sleep because right. some yeah. you know they, they saw something interesting during the day and they just want to keep telling you stuff about it and and obviously, you have to listen because that's what, that's what good parents do, right? So you don't just like, you know, just be quiet, you know? It's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's cool. And then you kind of like get into a conversation and that's the end of that. You sleep for that night. You know? And it just kind of <laughs> just continues like that. You know, like, uh, dad, I'm hungry. Mom, I'm hungry, you know? And, and like, uh, and obviously, obviously, there's, the, you know, the, you know if, if there's breastfeeding involved, then of course, that's like, you know, for the really young ones, it's every couple of hours, isn't it? You know, and yeah. it's, just, sorry. it's tough during the early years, I think. Yeah. As, as it gets, as they get older, it becomes different. It's yeah. still tough, yeah. but in a different easier, way. Easier, it's but tough, it's not but physically easier. as tough. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah. <laughs> you, 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 it's, it's tougher at a slower pace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't have to be right. running all over the place, keeping it. Oh my God, are they into this? You don't have to have like all the guards and everything that opens. Yeah, <laughs> or turns. yeah. That's it. You know, and also, you know, the the fun thing is that you always get shocked by you know like um, appearances of intellectualism throughout the years. So obviously, they're they're you know they're developing um, intellectually all the time.
right? So then they'll have the, and you'll notice this, you know, they'll have these step changes. And they're quite abrupt step changes where they just start talking to you back in a completely different way. Like from single words to sentences. How did that happen? When did that happen? I thought I was here yesterday, you know? But, uh, you know, it's quite abrupt. They will just all of a sudden, like, start speaking in a different way uh, that you're not used to. And you're just like, oh, I have to, like, start changing the way I start thinking and, and behaving again. And then it'll happen again. I, and it keeps happening. It keeps happening. <laughs> and it never stops, actually. That's the interesting thing. It, you know, it's like, uh, That's amazing. it just keeps going. <laughs> That's amazing. How old are your results uh, now? So mine are like uh, 20 and 18. Okay. Yeah. So You're still going. Still going. Yeah. Right. <laughs> still going. That's not going to change. No, man. <laughs> I think it just keeps going. <laughs> See, so. when they become parents, it slows down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and there's a physical reason for that, as we just discussed. You know, so. <laughs> Man. Uh, Parvis, uh, yeah. so Fighting for Lives, how do people, how do people find it? Uh, mixed reactions, actually. A lot of people out there love it, and they want to help. They want to get involved, you know. Luckily, you're one of those, you know. I, I, so, uh, I meant where do people go to look at it? Like, where do they go to find it? <laughs> I, did, I didn't mean do people like it or not. I think I don't. I think people that don't like it must be idiots. I I can't even believe there are any. <laughs> but uh, I was just saying, where do people go to find it? Like, uh, how, where do I look on oh, the internet? Like actually, search for it. Well, right, right. I mean, um, you can just go to fightingforlives.com. That's the website. It's pretty crap. The best place to get uh, regular information is actually our Facebook page. Um, we recently set up an Instagram page that links to the Facebook. So we have modernized finally. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but the Instagram page is quite new, so it doesn't have, you know, the chronology of everything, but the Facebook page has been up there for years. So, and if you're on Facebook, just go to fighting for lives dash giving children a chance in life and you will find us. You'll find lots of stuff on, uh, you know, martial arts as well. Mm. Uh, not just ourselves, but whenever our brothers do events, if they share their videos or photos with us, we put them up as well. Um, so you might get like different flavors of different uh, styles of combatives or traditional arts or whatever. We're, we're open-minded to everything, you know, we, obviously. Um, uh, and you also get regular updates on the different projects that are ongoing. So you'll actually, scroll back on the uh, Facebook pages, like, you know, to nine years, 10 years, you'll actually find stuff on projects that have closed down, like the stuff in Sierra, Sierra Leone, some of the stuff that Luke was doing in Thailand, some of the stuff we were doing in Ghana, which hasn't officially closed down. We just never <laughs> got to the stage where we like uh, developed an educational project properly. So we haven't sort of seen that yet, but it's still open in that sense. Um, but, you know, so you can actually see a whole chronology of things right the way back to, you know, not the beginning, but close to the beginning. I mean, it, I started this in 2005, just, you know, it wasn't meant to be as big as it is. Uh, it was just a friend of mine who came into my office and said, yeah, I started learning karate. And I was like, do you want to learn to do stuff with like weapons as well? You know, because I was well into the Southeast Asian arts, obviously. Oh, yeah. um, so he was like, yeah, so we just started training. and then. I thought, this is kind of empty. Let's just, you know, put, every time we train, let's put a euro into UNICEF. Right. Uh, and then, it, you know, then it's just sort of developed from there because, you know, after we realized that most of the 
money in these big um, big charity organizations goes to admin and stuff. So okay, forget that. Let's just make our own projects. You know, so we just did that, and uh, so now we run our own projects, which is pretty cool actually. And it's it's nice because all of our projects in each of the countries are also run by fighters. So you know, in Kenya, they're like you know, we, the 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 guy running it there. He's a he's Kenyan Taekwondo champion. Uh, the John, he's like a jujitsu. He's not a mom, but he's a practitioner. You know, Chico, obviously in Indonesia, he's uh, you know he practices several arts. He does libre. He does uh, my po silat uh, and that kind of stuff. He does aikido as well. Um, and you know, in Nepal, you know, okay. That guy, yeah, so Mukunda, he doesn't do martial arts himself, but his brother does. So, you know, we'll take that. Hi there, Jason. <laughs> you said uh, you didn't expect you to get this big, and you said, you know, you're kind of doing orphanages and move more now um, to medical clinics. How, how did that focus shift? Why did, it, why did you, kind of, how, was the, how did that journey come to be? How, how did you, how did you get it? Um, it just, uh, I mean, I think it was, uh, you know, we were, we were helping the orphanages and that was pretty cool, but we were always kind of like, um, like we would go there, do stuff and then leave. And, we, you know, it was kind of like uh, we were always guests. Do you see what I mean? And I, you know, I had this vision uh, about 10 years down the line or maybe a bit earlier, maybe seven years down the line, eight years down the line, thinking to myself, you know, that, you know, why don't we just run things ourselves completely? And if we do stuff for orphanages, we're at least using the money for good at the moment. And we're getting ideas. We're getting, uh, you know, we're getting sort of uh, understandings from different places on structures and how they function and that kind of stuff, how, how they sort of raise funds locally and how they, you know, do stuff with the kids, what they do with the kids, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And uh, by sort of... Helping those understandings through helping different orphanages and different other organizations in the earlier years, we then understood how we could run our own projects. And by running our own projects, we, we enabled the you know, uh, complete control of those projects in that we could just be, all right, we're just like, I mean, because we, you know, one thing we do not do is we don't get involved in, um, you know, forcing politics, forcing religion, anything like that. Fighting for lives is neutral. And this is very, very important for us. We also stick with helping kids primarily because obviously, you know, uh, nobody who has any brain cells will bring children into politics. Is that what I mean? Um, so that's, you know, obviously if, you know, if there's a street mother who's sick and that's the mother of a street child, we'll help the street mother, obviously. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say primarily there. Um, so it's like, you know, 95% of the people we help are kids, but anybody else, they're usually associated to some of the street children in some way. Um, and yeah, so we kind of just developed these structures slowly but surely and started understanding how we could actually uh, run our own stuff. And now that we are, we're just kind of building that up. So uh, the stuff in Indonesia works brilliantly. You know, Chico is like... Uh, you know, a a master when it comes to leadership of these kinds of things, because uh, you know it's like he just knows exactly how to run these things, and he's he's fantastic. And also, I think the uh, the you know the martial arts scholarship program that you opened is such a fantastic way of making sure that these kids have a future, 
and that we can give a future to them. Yeah, because at, at the House of Wolves, they teach, I think, 15 different martial arts or something like that. So these street kids who come in on the scholarship program, they come in and they learn so many different martial arts and they become master level at different martial arts. And when they leave, they can actually, you know, they can support their own family if they want to um, on the money that they could potentially earn from, uh, you know, from teaching this stuff. So, you know, we have, like, like I said, we have a similar program in, uh, in Kenya. It's mostly about rehabilitation because they've been, you know, treated very badly on the street. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, we have a lot of mentoring going on there. We have okay. guys like social workers who come and, and speak to the kids and try to understand their needs better and that kind of stuff. So we kind of bring in elements of expertise that obviously, you know, one person can't know everything. So we can't say to Jackson, do this, 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 and this, because obviously he can't be a social worker and a martial arts champion at the same time. But he can at least run the place. He can, you know, teach the kids the, you know, discipline through martial arts. And as a, you know, he's a father, of course, himself. He's got lots of kids. So he understands children. He understands their needs. So he has that behind him as well. But then we'll pull in other people who can do specific social work. Uh, and try to help these kids get out of their traumatized states and try to encourage them to find a future. And that's the, you know, that's kind of like the difference between Indonesia and Kenya is that with Kenya, we're trying to get these kids to have the motivation to find a future. Because, you know, when they come to the camp, when they came to the camp initially, they're just like obviously completely high and their brains were messed up and everything. Um, But also zero motivation. It's just like, you know, like that, you know what I mean? But now, you know, some of the two of them are going to school now, okay. for example, two of the boys. And um, last time I was there, uh, two of them were telling me they want to do vocational training so that they can become, uh, vo- you know, in- engineers or something like that. And they can, so they, they're actually now seeing the future, which is brilliant. And when these guys leave and they move on, we'll just bring more kids in. Do you know what I mean? And uh, replace. But like I said, you know, at the moment it's all boys over there just because of the logistics. Uh, we can't, you know, I don't think we'd be able to manage uh, having pregnant um, girls on site as well. Yeah. It just, it would be difficult, you know. And it's, it's nothing to do with, the, you know, anti-gender or anything, obviously. We, we, we always help everybody we can, but it's just the logistics, you know. We, we have to be able to hire a full-time nanny if you want to do mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. Typical. Yeah, uh, you know, <clears throat> and then you don't make a lot of money, uh, and, and in certain cultures bring in a lot of money. So maybe causing, you know, you might you might be trying to do good, but causing conflict. If you, you know, you have to wait, wait. Exactly. Right? Absolutely, and that's the kind of stuff you need to avoid. You know. Yeah. And you know, it's these kinds of like you know, a lot of um, a lot of guys who work on the door actually have you know have a good feel for that kind of conflict resolution they have a lot of that in them already just because they are you know they have all these experiences and instances where they just meet lots of different people on the door and they just sort of uh, you know, i think they kind of internalize a lot of that stuff so i think we need to uh, pull in a few a few guys you know who uh, work on these doors to give us some advice actually when it comes to uh, if we bring girls <laughs> right. in, you know what they feel internally right. 
You know what I mean? Because they probably have some ideas. That well, you they, do internalize they're, it. They're open-minded to everybody, man. Yeah, you do internalize it because, like you said, you see so many, you're on the door, you see so many people, you start to see patterns of behavior. Like, yeah. a popul- <laughs> like over a span of 20 years, you can see hundreds of thousands of people and you might have like a collection of five excuses of why they should get in the bar, <laughs> you know, and it's amazing. And it's a pattern, there you go. right? And you look at body language and there's, there's patterns and, 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 and then that's that the just, thing. then your brain just gets that training. Cause it's just running, yeah. those, it's running yeah. the scenarios every time. And it just becomes intuition. It just becomes yeah. intuition. It's it. so, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, but let's see, you know, I mean, uh, you know, we don't know what the future holds. We're just going. We're just winging it every day. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, but fighting for lives is very anarchistic in that sense. So. <laughs> Man, all right, Purvis, I can do. Uh, I can let you go, my sir. Yeah. Where do people? Where do people? Uh, where do people get a hold of you? So fightingforlives.com. Obviously, they can go to. Yeah, and, and yeah, if they want to contact us directly, just contact at fightingforlives.com. Contact. Uh, always yeah, okay. open to uh, speaking to them about stuff and if people want to help you know we have donate buttons so they can hold their own events it, uh, it doesn't have to be martial arts it could be like you know an egg and spoon race or whatever uh, if they just hold whatever event they want to to help us out they're more than welcome to and we have donate buttons on our webpage fightingforlives.com so uh, just get in there you know <laughs> um, how can people read the articles that you've written uh, which ones? Any of them. <laughs> so um, there's a couple that are, there's a couple under review right now. You said as well that'll be coming out yeah. shortly. So maybe so, those. Uh, basically, they can they can contact me and I can probably uh, scan and send. Okay. Uh, for example, or um, if they are a lot of the journals have paywalls, which I think is wrong, um, because you know the public funds research and the public should have access to research, right? But the journals, you know, they, they have these paywalls, very corrupt organizations at the end of the day, um, so that if the public wants to access, they need to pay for it. Um, but what people can do is they can contact the author, uh, and the author can send them a copy. Okay. So that is another way of getting around the problem. Um, so if they, see, you know, if they go to my um, university webpage, they can see a list of the different things I've published, and if they're interested in any of them, just uh, send awesome. me a message. I can send them the paper. I'd, I'd be very interested in that, in that one about the uh, the different arrowheads and, the, and then optimizing the materials. No problem. Yeah, no yeah. problem. I send you. I send you like the first one, and then once the other one has been reviewed and uh, and revised, I send you that one as well. Awesome, brother. Yeah. Harvest. Thanks for coming on tonight, man. Oh, cool. I appreciate. Well, you did you get up specially early for this for on your end? I did. I did. Oh, right now, I should be like sleeping comfortably. Well, oh. I shouldn't actually. I should be awake and doing something. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for uh, thank you for uh, dragging your ass out of bed and, uh, Yeah, no worries. So good to see you, man. So good. Likewise, to brother. It's like so long. You know, we need to meet in person again. That's the that's that the is. goal for 2021. That's the right. Pandemic is over. Right. I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind being back in Ireland again. Actually, I've, I've been, I've, I've talked a little bit on a couple of podcasts that uh, once COVID kind of goes away and we kind of see what our new normal looks like, including travel, uh, I want to plan something in, uh, in Portugal, looking at Portugal and maybe yeah. bring, yeah. you know, kind of bring a bunch of different people together in that one spot. So maybe that'd uh, be cool. Maybe that'd, that'd be brilliant. Be 
That'd be, That'd be the, fantastic. Uh, and Portugal's a good good place to do it because warm, sunny, you know. So uh well, probably just, let me <laughs> just let me know, man. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're ever in Scotland, just give me a shout. You have a place to stay. Oh man, if I go to Scotland, we're gonna be going on some distillery tours for sure. Oh yeah, <laughs> very famous for that kind of stuff, you know. Yes, I don't sir. drink myself. I know, I, I know. Bring you in the right direction. All right, all right. <laughs> I think uh, there's there's this issue between Scottish and Irish whiskey, from what I've heard. What issue? Like, the Irish whiskey is more peaty. The Scottish whiskey is less. Obviously, as somebody who doesn't drink, I have no clue as to what. Right, right, right. About, but you might understand what that's yeah. about. They have uh, six different regions in Scotland that kind of have a distinct kind of characteristics of their whiskies, uh, okay. and the Isla region is where the peaty stuff is. Uh, Irish whiskey, <clears throat> Irish whiskey is going through a real boom right now. Uh, right. They have a lot of kind of craft distilleries popping up, and yeah. some are great and some are not so great. <laughs> okay. You okay. know, whiskey is as, uh, as bountiful as, uh, you know, anything else. There's an infinite, infinite amount of whiskeys and categories you could have. Yeah. And, uh, but I, so, so my, there's some really good Irish whiskeys. There's actually, uh, there's one peated Irish whiskey called Connemara, which is, uh, is one, of okay. my, one of my favorites. I had it on my honeymoon what when defines, I went What defines a good whiskey then? It's, it's it's how it's subjective. You... It's subjective right. to be honest. Okay. Because yeah. you know, uh, if I drink, a, if I have a particular whiskey that I I might be, I, I love this, and someone else yeah. might hate it for different reasons. Like uh, okay, so it's, it's basically the same as food. Yeah, and it's uh, and it's funny because it, there's a whole whiskey like subculture, and there's and there's like topics in it become very polarizing, and it's amazing, and uh, right. it's it's uh, it's, it's uh, interesting. Uh, Interesting little rabbit hole that I've I've gone down in the last couple of years. <laughs> interesting, yeah, yeah. Well, you will love it in Scotland then. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Uh, so, but you're yeah, more than welcome anytime. Just uh, you have a place to stay. So, sure, pleasure. All right. uh, I should take you up on that. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, have yourself a great day. Yeah, you too. Take care, bro. Cheers. Bye. -bye.